you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page number 8, Genesis chapter 11. Uh, periodically, it would be good for us to consider, both individually and collectively, where we would be if it were not for God's gracious intervention in our lives. Many years ago, singer Larnell Harris sang these words. Were it not for grace, I can, I can tell you where I'd be. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. I know how that would go. The battles I would face. Forever running and losing the race. Were it not for grace. Maybe your testimony would be the same. Well, in our study in the book of Genesis, we have seen a repeated pattern in chapters 1 through 11. And the pattern goes like this. Sin, consequence, grace. It started in the garden where we saw Adam and Eve fail the temptation in the garden, sin, rebelling against God. God then cursed the, the earth. He punished Adam and Eve but he promised a redeemer, grace. In chapters four and five, Cain murdered Abel, sin. Consequence, Cain was cursed, and we see humanity further break down. But, as we see in chapter five, Noah found favor in the eyes of God, grace. In chapters 6 through 9, the, the flood narrative, we learned of the wickedness of man and how it was great on the earth. That is sin. The consequence is God destroyed the earth with a flood. But God made a covenant afterward with creation, grace. And this brings us to today. Today in chapter 11, we'll see defiance against God. That's sin. We're going to see God's response to this rebellion to confuse and disperse humanity. That's punishment. But then a promise. We won't see it in this passage right now, but we'll see it in the future. A promise blessing to all the nations which would come through Abraham. And we'll get to that actually in chapter 12. In some ways, the Tower of Babel is a return to the Garden Rebellion. One writer says it this way, Genesis 1 through 11 then has come full circle from Eden to Babylon, both remembered for the expulsion of its residents, as we'll see here in chapter 11 in just a moment. So this pattern, sin, consequence, grace, it has a commonality as mankind always desires power apart from God which our passage will clearly show once again. But it was not only, or is not only, in Genesis 1 through 11 that we see this kind of attitude. We can look through the pages of the Old Testament to people like King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, who wanted power. We can look into the New Testament to King Herod, who wanted glory. But we don't have to look just to kings, do we? We can look to our own heart, our own lives to bear testimony that we want power, we want 
praise. We want what we want. The people at, at, at Babel attempted to live independently without God in order to secure their own desires to get what they wanted. They not only failed spectacularly, as we'll see, but also demonstrate that rebellion against God results in separation from God. We could call this the Babylonian heart. And that heart begins with rebellion. Look at verses 1 through 4, starting in verse 1 and 2, chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now last week, we briefly looked at the genealogy of Noah's sons in chapter 10. We said then that the placement of that chapter was not chronological. It's there uh, liter for literary purposes or for thematic purposes. It's telling us about what happens actually after this event here in chapter 11. But in chapter 10, it sets up the story of chapter 11. It sets up the tower story. And it actually even alludes to the, the tower story. And in chapter 10, verse 10, we first hear of this city named Babel. And where it is in the land of Shinar. In that very set of verses, chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, we also meet a man. A man named Nimrod, whose name means we shall rebel. The text tells us that he was a mighty man or a mighty warrior or, or a mighty hunter who desired to build a kingdom, which included, it's not only, but included Babel as we see in chapter 10. And he did this in defiance of God's desire, as we'll see in just a moment. But verses 1 through 9 describe how that worked out of chapter 11. Uh, Moses sets the scene up for, for us by, by describing the unity of the whole world. Verse 1 tells us that they, there was one language and the same words, or the same, literally the same lip, that they had one language. Uh, there were no barriers to communication. Like they could pull all their resources together and deploy all those resources for a common goal or for whatever the people wanted to do. And that might sound fine. That might sound efficient. That might sound very Western of us to pull all our resources together and so to, to uh, complete a goal. But we don't read this story in isolation. We read this story in the context of what came before it. And in chapter 9, after Noah gets off of the ark, God says to Noah something. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The command is to have children and to spread out, to fill out the earth. And yet here, what we see is the very opposite. And Moses actually uses the word settled. That this is, they came to this place and they settled, which is actually the opposite of dispersion. Is to settle is the opposite of being dispersed. That's exactly what we see them do here. Additionally, Moses describes where they settled. And as a people, they migrated from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they migrated from the east, or some Bibles say eastward, and this might not mean a lot to us, but there's an inference in the book of Genesis when it talks about east. This movement east is always a movement farther from God. Or as one writer says, outside the place of blessing. And we can see it back in chapter 3. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, it says they, they went east of Eden. 
We're going to see it in chapter 13 when Lot and Abraham divide up the land. And what did Lot do? Lot journeyed eastward towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And in chapter 29, Jacob journeyed to the land of the people of the east. So we have the the scene set for where they are. Moses then continues in verses 3 and 4 to express the plans and the desires of these people. Look at verses three and four. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and vitamin for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here's the plan. Build a city and build a tower. That's the plan, right? There's certainly going to be more of that for for Nimrod as we saw in chapter 10. But specifically here, Moses hones hones in on these two things. Build a city and build a tower. We know Nimrod built multiple cities and actually was interested in building a kingdom is what chapter 10 tells us. But what's the desire for a city? Why a city? Verse four tells us, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's build a city so that we can all be together so that we won't have to separate. What is that? That's in direct violation of what God had said. So we will not have to do what God said. Let us get a place where we all can be together so we don't have to do what God has said. They were unwilling to separate. That they valued their plans over God's commands. That they valued their convenience over what God has said. That they sought power. Nimrod specifically was seeking power, accumulation of power, more and more power. Well, next we see why they planned uh, their their plans for a a tower. So the tower was with its tops in the heavens, right? That's what the description is in the text. Uh, This is a figurative expression to mean that it was was tall, right? Think think of uh, when we say skyscraper. Right? We don't actually mean that it is, you know, whatever. It's, it's a height, um, an issue of height. Now, the tower was probably what was called a ziggurat. We have a picture of a, a ziggurat here. And this was a, a, um, a structure that was similar to a, uh, uh, um, a pyramid. It was not as big as a pyramid, but it was similar to a pyramid. One writer says that except the, the successive levels were recessed so that you could walk to the tops um, with, within these, or with these steps, as you can see in, in the picture. At, at the top would have been a shrine or a temple, which was an optimal place high above the ground to observe stars which that would have been pagan worship. The ancients believed that deities dwelt in high places. And so the tower uh, for Babylon or for uh, for this place, which was said to be in a low low ground, uh, this tower was a substitute for a mountain. And so that's why they built this, so that they could get up higher. However, uh, we know that no tower, uh, man-made, no tower, however tall you want to make it, could ever reach God. Why? Because God is spirit, and God is not inhabited in a local place. He's not contained to one place where somehow we could find him in a location. Here their desire was either to join God, seemingly going up to heaven, or to displace God. In any case, they were 
wrong. Verse 4 tells us the desire for the, for the, for the tower. Why, why build the tower? We know why they're building the, the city. Why are they building the tower? Verse 4 also tells us. Let us make a name for ourselves. Why, why a tower? So we'll be remembered. So that we get glory. So we get attention. So we get praise. There's a fear of being forgotten. This is pride. It was all about them. It was about their name. It was about their glory. It had nothing to do with God. Now we may be at times in danger of the desire to make our name great, to be known, to be popular, to be remembered. We ought to consider why do we do what we do? Is it to make a name for ourselves? We may seek this in our work. We may seek this in our achievements or in our resumes, in our finances. We may even seek this in good things like our generosity. Maybe I'll get my name on a building if I'm very generous. In our reputations, what men think of us may lead us to care more about our name than God's name. At its worst, making a name for ourselves tempts us to take what is not ours to take. And that is glory. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8 says, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Or another translation says, Your renown is the desire of our soul. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Hallowed be thy name, not our name. Babel was all about Man, it was all about ourselves, what we want. Our name being known in this world is of little consequence. It's of little consequence. Eternally, what do we look at? We look at God's name. We look at God's glory. You, you and I, we exist for his name's sake. Do you know that? Do you know that you were created by God and you were created for God? And therefore, what you do is only about his glory. It's not about your glory. If we make this about us, we miss the point of life. You miss the point of life. What do you want to do with your life, we ask people. Well, that's fine, but really the question ought to be, what does God want you to do with your life? How can I use what he has given to me for his glory and not my glory? We bear the image of God. We are children of God in Christ. That's what God says about us, but it's all about him. We're children of God. We're bearers of God. Of God's image. Well, that's the rebellion. In the face of that rebellion, God responds in verses five and six. Look at verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had made. Now, this is the, the hinge of the story. Back in the flood narrative, we talked about uh, the structure of chapter six, seven, and eight, and how it was um, what they call a chiastic structure. And there's a hinge, a middle part. And in chapter 8, verse 1, the hinge was, and God remembered Noah. Well, here the hinge of these nine verses is the beginning of verse 5. And the Lord came down. So this is what men are doing. And then we get to this hinge. And the Lord came down. There's a little bit of irony here. Actually, a little bit of humor, maybe even sarcasm, if you will. Uh, because what does Moses say about God, that God had to descend in order to see this city, in order to see this great tower. 
Isn't that interesting the way he says that? This great tower that's supposed to reach to the heavens, God has to come down in order to see it. He had to descend in order to see it. And then he assessed the situation in verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is not saying that the unity of humanity means that they could achieve anything that they wanted. That's not what the Lord is saying. Rather, he is saying that the depths of their sinfulness would lead them further and further from God. One commentator rephrases what what the Lord has said like this. It's as if the Lord were saying, if I let their sin go unchecked, there is no telling how much worse it will get. No rebellion will be too great for them. Nothing could be sacred in their crooked hearts. That same writer goes on to say, we should remember Babel and remind ourselves, if God doesn't restrain the natural bent of my heart, nothing, that is no sin, will be impossible for me. It's a sobering reality a sobering consideration that if God does not restrain the natural bent of my heart, there is no sin that will be impossible for me to achieve. My late friend and mentor Patrick McGoldrick used to say, you are one heart decision away from ruining your life. We can thank God for his restraining grace in our life. If not for it, where would we be? And so God acted. He responds by seeing what is happening. And now we see his intervention in verse 7. It says this, And come now, or come let us, go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. We see that repeated phrase there, come let us. We saw it in verses 3 and verses 4. What man tries to do can never be successful if God doesn't want it to be successful. Right? God God overrules, come let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Come let us. In three and four, they're talking about the people, us, collectively. Now here in verse seven, God says, come let us. That's a plural. That's a plural for who? That's for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, 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 The Godhead was involved in what happened at the Tower of Babel. As the Godhead was involved at creation, here now we see again the Godhead involved. Anyone who wants to believe that God has somehow made creation and let it go has not read the Bible closely enough to understand that God has been clearly involved in human history throughout all time. So God acted, acted in divine judgment against the revolt at Bethel with restraining grace. Look at verse eight. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Mankind thought they could do what they wanted without consequence. They thought if they pulled all their resources, they could do whatever they wanted. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16 says, and a haughty spirit before a fall. James four verse six says pride God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here we see God graciously confusing the language. This is actually grace here. 
It's actually gracious that that God did this. And he did it in order to prevent them from further disobedience. He did it to cause them to scatter as he commanded. And he did it while preserving their life. This is the great reversal. For their own good, God intervenes. From one language came many. From one group became nations. From one inhabited land, the earth began to be filled. Not all unity, we see, is from God. What's better than unity? Purity. Purity is better than unity. The goal is not always unity. Sometimes, like at Bethel, humans are prone to unite around the wrong ideas. Unity can be good, but unity without purity is ungodly. So for their sake and for no further revolt, God disperses the people. For the sake of purity, God disperses the people. He restrains their natural bent of their heart for his glory and for their good. And he does so even today. Well, verse nine concludes the narrative. Therefore, it is called, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the people, the Lord dispersed from over the face of the earth over the face of all the earth. This is then, then the event, right? This is the event that chapter 10, verse 25 says, when the earth was divided. When the earth was divided, meaning when people separated, when nations became, became to be built, when languages developed. This is the origins of nations. This is the origins of language. This is a massive event in, in the world, in the history of the world, as God disrupted man's plans. And he sovereignly and graciously separated people to do what he had planned. Uh, The word here, uh, confused, we don't see it in the original language. But in the original language, it's the word Baylal. Baylal, which sounds a lot like Bayball, right? And so we have this little word play in, in the original language that this word Babel now was once, we should say, was once uh, known to be the gate of God. That's what the, the original definition is. But, but now it is much more known for confusion. It's much more known as, as a place of meaningless babble, as was the case. But at Babel, the people sought to build their own city. Right? They sought to make a name for themselves. In just a little bit, we're going to get into chapter 12. And we're going to see Abraham whom God calls, who God says he's going to make a great name for Abraham. He's going to be the father of a people. He's going to lead the people of Israel. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we also are told that Abraham sought a city. Nimrod sought a city. All these people sought to build this city. But Abraham also sought a city. But it was a different kind of city. It's a city whose designer, whose architect, and whose builder was God. This was another city. This was a greater city. See, in chapter 11 is the beginning of, of what we might refer to as Babel. But, but through the Old Testament, this word also comes to refer to the city of Babylon. In Babylon, we come to find out symbolizes nothing good. It symbolizes human ambition. It, it symbolizes wickedness and corruption and godliness and pride and defiance. 
And as we read our Bible, we come to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, which describes for us the fall of Babylon. But only a, a few chapters later, in contrast with the city of Babylon, the same writer, John, describes another city. The holy city. The new heavenly city of Jerusalem, which brings glory to God. And in one writer's words, whose open gates unite the nations. The very thing that Babel tried to do in its own power, only God can do for his glory. See, at Babel, the, the earth, John Stott says this, the earth sought to reach to heaven. But soon, heaven would reach to earth. Man cannot achieve heaven on his own. No deeds, no man-made religion, no works will ever do it. God had to come to us in order that we could come to him. God descended at Babel. He descended in restraining grace against the people. And he descended again. He descended in grace as Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. As Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved, thereby providing salvation for all who would repent and believe in his name. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And as you're turning, listen, please. Ba Babel is, uh, is a story of great rebellion and great grace. And this morning, we see again, as we come to the table, the one who came for us, the one who, who offers grace to rebels like you and me the one whose body was pierced and whose blood was shed in order that we could be brought back to God. In the garden, Adam and Eve were banished. At Babel, the people were dispersed. But in Christ and through Christ, we are brought back to God. We are reconciled with God. And so if you know Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, by faith alone for salvation, we invite you to participate as we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us to bring us to God. We who were once rebels have been brought back through the grace of God. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, then we would ask for you to not receive these elements of the bread and the cup. If you have unrepented sin in your life, we ask you please do not take of these elements. But rather, as you sit here for just a few moments, let the plates pass and instead repent. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus this morning and receive something better than two symbols that remind us of Jesus. Receive Jesus himself. Receive the forgiveness that he gives. Receive the, the eternal life that starts now and lasts forever. And this gift comes only through Jesus. In just a few moments, we'll ask the servers to come forward. But before that, if you would pause for just a moment as we prepare our hearts to receive communion. 
as we ask God to search us and lead us to repentance, there's, there'll be two prayers on the screen that may help you or guide you as you pray. So let's spend a few moments praying and preparing our hearts before we come to the table.